First Peter chapter two this evening, and uh, I was just uh, experiencing. I'll talk about it in a second here. We're trying to read those the notes, and I'm used to the, the screen back there, and it was really really interesting. My eyes playing all these fun tricks with me, and we'll talk about that in a second here. But First Peter chapter two. Uh, we've been going through just verse by verse, and as we come to this section in First Peter chapter 2, we're going to hit the practical section. Peter's going to start saying, here we go. Let's, let's put some of these truths of who we are as believers, as uh, people in Christ. Who are we, and can we live that out? As we left off a few weeks ago in our study, we're reminded that Peter's pivotal point is in verse, in verse 11 and 12. It's tricky. That's why I was rolling his eyes at me like, oh, it's, it's funny. There we go. We got it. Thank you. Remember that Peter said, and in, in we looked at it last time we were together, is that there, we are to live exceptional lives of love and holiness in society. That is our goal. We are to live in such a way that as the world sees us and as they see how we interact that they are able to see our good works and glorify our Father. They will see a radical difference, and it's not just how we live, but then eventually having the opportunities to share the gospel and to see them, <clears throat> to see them change. And that is the, the, the lens, the perspective, the grid which Peter wants us to understand the body of his message, that it is not just about having some truth, but it's about living out those truths. It's about taking what he's going to talk about and fleshing it out and putting it to practice in our, in our lives. And what he does <clears throat> is he talks about the chaos of life. I mean, you really look at where he's going to go, and he's been talking about these individuals who are exiles, who are battling through, uh, being ripped from their homes, put in different places, and yet now their life is chaotic. Things are the, the, the place that they're at, it's not their home. They are strangers, they are aliens, and we are reminded that we are as well. And as we're told to live our Christian faith out, look where Peter goes. He's going to say, there's chaos, there's going to be slander, there's going to be ridicule. We are going to face hardships as the exiles, as believers in Jesus Christ. It's, it's going to happen. Peter focuses in on a few areas, though, in the end of chapter 2 into chapter 3, that truthfully are just difficult for us as fallen human beings because of our sin nature, because of the battles that we have, he looks and he says, let's, let's talk about some hard areas. He's going to talk about government. He's going to talk about family. He's going to talk about work. He's going to talk about church. I mean, when you really think about it, isn't that basically our work week? Our, our week in general, it's like there's church, there's family, there's work, there's government, and we're going to do it again next week, and then we're going to do it again next week. So Peter just doesn't randomly pick out these, these just obtuse thoughts. He's looking and saying, in our life, there are, some, there are some general areas that we need to consistently display before the world and how we interact, how we respond. And so as we, as we come to this passage, we, we see in verse number 13, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. And we know we're going to get into government, and we're going to talk about God and government. And we're always told, keep them separate, right? Don't mix God and government. Don't, don't mix religion and politics. They, they don't go, just keep them away. Don't, at the dinner conversations, don't, don't put them together. The great theologian Albert Einstein, um, yeah, not really, but he had a very interesting quote in regard to, to this. He said, those who believe that politics and religion do not mix, they understand neither. And there's truth there. 
Because out of God flows the truths of Scripture, the truths of government that we need to know and, and understand. But we need to look more than just simply at a political party or a platform or a person individually. We need to, as believers, learn to relate to the government biblically. And if we're going to do that, then we need to understand what God has to say about government. So before we even dive into what does it mean to submit to every ordinance? I mean, everybody's waiting for it. I know, like, what's he gonna say? Where's he gonna go? Is he gonna tell us to throw off this and do that or submit? What's he gonna say? Before we get there, let's, let's, let's back, back the train up a little bit and say, let's make sure we're all understanding what does God say about government? Does God really say a whole lot about government? I, the answer is yes. It's, it's like replete throughout the scriptures. You, you just keep going, and it's there, and it's there, and it's there. But I have a feeling sometimes when we look at scripture, doesn't she, she just makes you smile, doesn't she? I don't know. Maybe it's just me. Like, maybe it's, you know, the, the British in me. You know, grandma would always talk about the queen. I don't know. But I think sometimes when we talk about God and government, it's very similar to the queen of England. You think about the queen of England, utmost respect in England. People love her. They adore her. They talk about her. They, they, they know when she's at Buckingham Palace. The flag goes up. When she leaves, the flag goes down. On a consistent basis, the prime minister will come in and inform her of everything that's happening in the, in the nation, and they'll have conversations. But when it comes to the time of legislating, when it comes to the time of working through the ins and outs of everyday life in England, the queen has no say. She's, she's just there. And I'm afraid too often that's what happens with God and government. We recognize that God is there. We recognize that God is, you know, a part. We, you know, the government, they have prayers. They'll talk about different things. And, but when it comes to that moment of, of legislating, when it comes to that moment of considering what is best for the well-being of people, we, we have comments that are made. What any religious tradition describes as God's will has no, is no, of no concern to this Congress. That was stated in Jan- or June this year. That, that, that ought to like concern us. It does. Well, it concerns me because we do want God to be part, to, to have influence. And yet we will make acknowledgments as a government or even as believers that, okay, God is there, but government is separate. Do we keep them separate? Do we just buy into total separation of church and state? Do we try to infiltrate? And what, what do we, we'll talk about that coming up, not tonight. Uh, but we do. And we treat God sometimes like the Queen of England. And there's a lot of controversy in our culture. Is there not, is there, is there not a lot of controversy going on in our nation right now? I mean, part of the difficulty arises even for us as believers in how we approach these issues. How do we as believers go about wrestling through some of the different things that come about in relationship to us in government? And how much then should our culture dictate how we interpret the Bible? As we look at the Word of God and as we understand it, how much does our culture influence us or should it? The, the, the answer is it should not influence our interpretation. We hold to what is this idea? It's called a normal grammatical, historical interpretation of the Bible. We look at the Word of God, we understand the words in its original context, and we interpret it and understand it as it, meant, as it was meant in its original biblical context. Now, what about when we apply it to Scripture? Does our culture have influence? It does. Because now we take those principles and those truths that were there, and we're going to apply it to our situation. But we do not go to the Bible and say, well, as an American, this is what I want it to say. We have to first go back to Scripture, 
look and say, what does the truth of Scripture hold for us? And then, how do we apply it to our current situation? And so that's what I want to endeavor to do as we, we look here at God and government. When I interpret and apply a truth like, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, I come at that with lenses, and so do you. I just, this, about a week ago, I was introduced into this wonderful new world of called progressive lenses. Those of you, all of you laughing are like, yeah, we know. It has, it drives me nuts. Like the first couple days, it was, it was brutal. For those of you, it's the bifocals, but they're all, I have like three different prescriptions in each lens now. And they're like, oh, it's good for you. You'll be able to see at the computer, then you'll be able to read here and you'll be able to see far off. Man, the first couple days, I'm like, is this what it's like to, to be high? Because I was like, everything was like swirling everywhere. I was so weird. And it took a while for me to adjust and to learn how, how to focus and, and to figure it out. And there's still times if I swing down and I look down, I shouldn't do that because that's, that's not good. Um, there, those, those, those different prescriptions in my lenses cause me to focus different ways. The same thing is true when we go to the scriptures. We have lenses. We have, we have at least two lenses that we have as, as believers here in America. We have our American lens. We look through, we, we look and when we read scripture, we're looking at it and, and understanding, especially God and government, we're looking at it from an American perspective. There's, there's no way around that. You know, we're, we're looking and saying, okay, as an American, how does this apply to my life? We, we, we see that. But we also have a Christian perspective. And now the question comes in is, as I go to scriptures, which prescription is more powerful? Which one, if, if my reading prescriptions were up here where I'm supposed to see distance and my distance prescriptions were down, my life would be turned completely, it would not be good. The same is true when I come to the scriptures. When we come as American Christians, we come with those lenses and we have to look and say, okay, when we're looking at God and government, which prescription is stronger? How does one impact the other? Can I harmoniously bring them together and learn to focus? I believe we can. I believe we should. And I think we need to look and say, as believers, first and foremost, I am to have a Christian worldview. That means that my perspective, from a Christian perspective, that all spheres of my life are to be in, in accordance with the mind of Christ. So as I come to the scriptures and I see what the Bible says about government, I need to make sure that my understanding of government, my relation to government, and all that happens is in accord with the scriptures, not with what I want. Now hopefully, as I'm going through the scriptures, what I want is what Christ wants. But I need to make sure that they are both harmoniously working together. So my interpretation of scripture as an American Christian it cannot be based on my American heritage. It cannot be based on the Declaration of Independence, the Articles of Confederation, Thomas Jefferson's writing, or the Constitution. That cannot be the primary fundamental lens on which I interpret what does God say about government. It has to start first with my lenses of Christianity, looking at the Word of God and saying, what does the Bible say? Not, not that first. I'm not discounting those. That's, that's my American lens. But my first lens has to be the primary prescription. Has to be 
be from the word of God. So as Christians, we interpret the scriptures within a biblical context. We can have our opinions about government, and as Americans, we do. We have developed our opinions about God and government. 200 people here, we probably have 250 opinions about God and government right about now. We, we have those opinions, and we're entitled to those. But as a follower of Christ, we must make sure that our opinions line up with what God's truth is. And if they do not then my opinion needs to change because we don't change God's word. So we look at it and say, okay, what is God's truth and how does that then apply into our lives? Because of this, we need an objective standard because my, my opinion is not objective and neither is yours. We all come with slants. We all come with biases. We need to go to the scriptures and we need that to teach us about God and government. So we need to look there, and I, I think the Founding Fathers sort of understood this. We're one nation under God. We are endowed by our Creator with certain unalienable rights. It's not in money that we trust. It is in God that we trust. There is a dynamic where they are looking and saying, there is, there's truth here. We need to know what God has to say. They understood that, so let's look. Let's take our time and let's go back and say, what does the Bible teach? So let's back the train up. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, we know that God creates man. says, let us make man in our own image. And he creates all of mankind. And he creates them in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. And then what does he do? God blessed them and said to them, what does God do there? When he says to them, what is he doing? He's legislating. He is giving them commands. He is saying, this is how I'm going to govern you. You are going to obey my commands. And God legislates to Adam and Eve. He says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, the fowls of the air. And you're going to do this. And you eat of everything that's in the garden, except for, we know the one tree that they can, of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But what God does is he legislates to Adam and Eve, and he says, I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to govern directly with you. And man here is to obey God's authority. We, we see that laid out in Scripture. And so as man was to obey God's authority and recognize his governing actions here, Adam and Eve were to keep his commands. And that developed their holy character. And so that was their responsibility to continue in that. But we know what happens in Genesis chapter 3, don't we? Genesis chapter 3 happens. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, what does she do? She takes of that fruit of the tree. She eats of it. She gives to her husband also, and he ate. Then the eyes of both, were, they were opened because they knew that they were naked. Something changed. The fall has occurred. Now all of a sudden, they're recognizing in their mind, in their conscience, that something's not right here. So they, in response, they sew together fig leaves real quick, cover themselves up because they're ashamed. They, they understand right and wrong now that there's, there's something that's different. And because mankind failed, we all have this fallen sin nature. That is a constant that we need to understand. Even when we understand the truths and principles of government, we are to obey God, but we are a fallen people. And everyone who rules is a fallen person, a sinful person. With the fall of mankind comes the curse, comes death, sin, the evacuator, the, the expulsion out of the gar garden. And because of this, mankind, with mankind, God now changes how he governs with them. He's no longer going to walk 
and give them direct commands. Now he's going to work in their conscience. He's going to prompt their conscience and he is going to govern in mankind through the conscience that he has placed within, within the human. We see that. Behold, man has come, become like one of us, knowing what? Good and evil. And now lest he reach his hand out and take out of the tree of life, we're going to expel him out of the garden. And they, they put him out. And so their conscience, God now uses to prod them into righteous action, to, to live, live correctly. And they were to respond to God and his governing authority, his governing action through their conscience by, by responding to what was right and what was wrong. And it influences our decision. Our conscience still does that. Conscience functions according to the standard it is given. Here's what I mean by that. Our conscience can be trained. It can be educated. It can be influenced. It can be scarred. And as we're filling our minds and our hearts with certain things, our conscience tends to be seared, becomes softened. And as we we go through, and so the conscience, as humanity was going on in the early years of the world, is responding to good and evil, as God is prompting, as the Spirit is striving in in their hearts, prodding them to do right. Our conscience can prod us to do right, but it does not have that unfailing ability to tell us or to make us do what's right. Our will is so much stronger than our conscience so many times. Conscience during this time period in early, early humanity, Genesis 3, the fall and on for, for, for years, was the primary way that God governed during this time. So he started off governing with mankind person to person, but once the fall occurred, he began to govern through their conscience, through their heart. Now, maybe you love this statement. Maybe you do. There's, you know, there's no government. There, there's no government like no government. And you, you love the idea of anarchy. That's, we shouldn't be there. We'll, we'll get there in a second. But during this time period, God was using internal rule. There was no external civil restraint. There were, were no police. There was no jail. There was no human government that was, was present. God was directly ruling through the conscience of mankind. And mankind was to respond to God through the conviction of his conscience. But man refused, and we know this. For if, as, you, as you study your scriptures, you understand. From the fall to right around Genesis chapter 6, we know that humanity gets worse and worse and worse because they refuse to follow the dictates of the conscience. You remember what the result is in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5? Remember what it says there? It says, the, law saw, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of, their, of the thoughts was only evil continually. And it brought it to the point where God was sorrowed that he made the, made the mankind on the earth and what was he going to do? He's going to destroy it how? With the flood. But Noah finds grace in the eyes of the Lord. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 3, it says, The Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. The word strive here, yadon, is, has this idea of to, to strive within, to rule, to sit in judgment. And God is now saying there is going to be a time where I'm not going to be doing that anymore. Right now, that is how I'm operating, Noah. I'm operating by by ruling in the conscience, by prodding the conscience toward righteousness. But people are pushing that away. They are not following God. They are choosing to follow after their own wicked, sinful ways. 
I think there's a really interesting perspective here to think about. We, in our society, we're always talking about, well, my conscience, my con- you know, I don't want to do this because my conscience, my conscience, my conscience. Now, the Bible does talk about, Romans chapter 14 talks about, you know, that if we're not convinced that it is sin, or that it is right, that it's sin, that God still, in Genesis, or Romans chapter 2, still does that with our conscience. But look at where the sinful conscience of mankind can take them to a point where God was ready to destroy the world. To just say, well, it's just my conscience. We need to make sure that it's not just my conscience, but I'm coming from the word of God. That I have his authority that is influencing and educating and strengthening my conscious choices. Though God is going to adjust his governance, it's noted that it's important that God still uses and convicts mankind through his conscience. That's where I was, you know, Romans chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. It even says in verse 15, it says, They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. So God is still using our conscience to prod us toward righteousness, to convict us and to move us toward doing right. And yet we know, even with the Holy Spirit living within us, how easy is it to just turn on our conscience, to, to push it aside, the prodding of the Spirit, and so even in this time period, back in their early dispensations, to see that when they don't have a permanent indwelling of the Spirit, and yet they're still, they're, they're moving toward wickedness, toward righteousness. Here's the point I want to make. God has always been governing people. To say that it's just something that sort of happened or that mankind made up, no, God has always been governing. In the garden he was governing, after the garden, before the flood he was gardening, gardening. Well, he was gardening back in the garden, but he was governing. And, and so God was always, has always been governing people. We can't, we can't put that to the side. So when we start from our foundational elements of God and government, God is about law. God is about order. He is an orderly God. He has established governance. And so as we look at what he has to say, we have to look and say, okay, well, we look at our nation we, where, where, does, where does authority come from? Like, okay, we're a government what? Of the people, by the people, for the people, okay? So, so where do these guys get their authority from? Right? From us, right? Okay, so if that's the case, if, if the, because we're the people, well, let me ask you this. Where does Putin get his authority? Where does Xi Jinping get his authority? What about Angela Merkel? Where does she get her authority? Where does Emmanuel Macron... Where does he get his authority? Some of them are not from we the people. They're not. Do we really give our president the authority? Which lens? Now, I know I'm splitting here for a second, but bear with me. Humanity, or human government, when did it begin? After the fall, we have the conscience time. After the conscience, after the flood, what happens? God says to Noah that we're going to have something new start. It's called human government or civil government. Government gets its authority from God. Government does not get its authority from you and I. Government gets its ultimate authority from God. It is a divine institution. Civil government is a spiritual thing. I know that sounds blasphemous, but it is a divine institution given to us by God. The conscience governed men internally. 
Yet God desired that man be governed externally, so God instituted the concept of civil government so that man would have an external restraint, something to push down, push back against the natural wickedness that every thought is evil only to every, every extent and every intent. Genesis 9, 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed for God made man in his own image. The exactor of justice in this passage is man. It is by man his blood shall be shed. Murder destroys the image of God in mankind. That's what God is saying here. That goes for any level of murder, whether it's abortion or whether it's euthanasia. It is murder and it destroys the image of God in mankind. And we need to, we need to oppose it. Absolutely. The exactor of justice is man. Man here is to rule for God. God establishes that mankind is going to be the one who brings out the execution. Mankind is going to be the one who brings down this judgment. Man was to protect human life by justice, by capital punishment, by meeting out which was, that which was due to the individual. And so God establishes as a divine institution in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, civil government, human government, is appointed by God, it is ordained by God. Law is necessary for the stability of life and order. There's always been law, starting in the garden all the way through. We, by nature, we don't like law. We know it's necessary, but we don't, by nature, being told like what to do. It's just, it's, it's how we are. Romans chapter 13. Flip over there if you want to. Another, another great passage on the beginning or the authority of government. Let every soul, every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists that what God has appointed or ordained, and those who resist will incur judgment. There is no authority except it comes from God. That is, that is where authority comes from. Authority does not come from me, the people. Authority comes from God. Those in authority are instituted or ordained by God. We, the, the text lays it out very clearly that God has ordained this. God has placed them there. We must then recognize their authority. Romans chapter 13 does not allow me to, to, to put that aside. God has ordained human government. Period. There's, there's no way around that. God is the one who's established it. Notice it says in the, in the passage there about the ordinance of God. That God has appointed it if we, are, we go against the ordinance of God. God has instituted it and he has something to say about it. The concept of civil government. Um, so that he would, uh, God instituted the concept of civil government so that man would have a much needed external restraint. God says, I put this in place, and I put it in place for you. And you are to understand that, and you are to accept that, and I am to understand what God has said, because government is instituted by God for man to rule for God. Is the government sovereign? Think about that question for a second. Let that, because government is instituted by God, and he institutes it for man to rule in his place, and he is the sovereign, 
does that mean the government is sovereign? This is important for when we get to other questions that everybody wants answered. Is the government sovereign? Let's, let's see, what does the Bible say? Romans 13, let every person, look at this, look at the plurals and the, the singulars here. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, plural, for there is no authority, singular, except to come from God. Though, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities, plural, resists what God has appointed. There are many authorities in this world, but there is only, and it should say one there, there is only one authority. That is God. Tony Evans said this way, the authority, I really liked it, the authority of the authorities is derived from the authority. The authority that our government has, or any government in this world has, is derived from the one who gives authority. That's what Romans 13 is telling us, that they can't have it except he gives it to them. So as we look at government, whether here or around the world, we understand that God has instituted, God has ordained the government there. Think about Roman, or Genesis chapter 41. Remember Joseph before Pot, or Pharaoh, and Pharaoh wants the dream interpreted. And what does Joseph continually tell him? He says, God's going to give you an answer. You can't figure it out, but there's one who's greater than you. Now remember, Pharaoh is, in their world, he is what? He's God. And Joseph's looking and saying, there's, there's one who's more sovereign than you are. He, he has the answers in 40, uh, verse 32. He says, and it's because he's established this, that this, this famine's gonna come. And he will bring it to pass. There's, you may think you're divine. You may think you are the authority, but Pharaoh, you're not the authority. There's one who is greater. Psalm 22, verse eight, the kingdom is the Lord's. And he is the what? He's the governor among all the nations. He oversees, he's, he is above all the nations and all the governments. Psalm 103, his government, his kingdom rules over all. Daniel chapter two, you remember the, the statue. Nebuchadnezzar has the dream. And Daniel comes to him and as they're talking, what does Daniel say about God? To Nebuchadnezzar, who remind you, the head of gold. I mean, he's, he's the big dog in this picture here. And the whole dream, Nebuchadnezzar is, I mean, he's the great, the great emperor, the great king. Daniel says, Jehovah, God, he changes the times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Daniel chapter 2, later on, verse 37. You, O king, the king of kings, you, you, are, you are high, you are exalted, but to you, to whom the God of heaven has given you the kingdom the power, the might, the glory. You may think you are all that, Nebuchadnezzar, but there is one who is more sovereign. He is the sovereign. Where does your authority come from, Nebuchadnezzar? It comes from God. Remember uh, chapter four? He has another dream. The tree gets chopped down. There's the band that's, that's put around it. And Daniel says to him, the sentence is decree, uh, by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living that those, those in your kingdom, those around the world, those who are here, the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it, sets over it the lowliest of men. That, that verse says a lot. A lot about not just government, but about the leaders in government. 
Do you catch what it says? The Most High rules the kingdom of men, and he gives it to who he wishes. God is in control. God did not fall out of control in 2020 in the election. God knows. He gives it to whom he wills. One, one commentator said it this way. This is one of, the most, uh, one of the immortal sentences of Scripture. God gives these kingdoms to anyone he wishes as a further rebuke to Nebuchadnezzar's pride and to that of all the kings of the earth. God points out that at times he even allows the lowliest, the most seemingly incompetent men to rule. Anybody ever feel that way? And yet, what does Daniel remind us? God, God knows. God's in control. God is, the book of Daniel, God is sovereign in the affairs of men. And yet I think sometimes I have Nebuchadnezzar's pride as an American. I look and I say, it is my choice, it is my vote, and I want to have who I want, I I do, I want who I want in the office, no doubt. I'm the one who puts him there, it's me. It's me, God. I'm the one who has that authority. I have all that authority. I'm the one who's in control of this. We, we the people are in control of this. We're the ones who make the decisions for this country. We're the ones who influence. And what does God's truth say? He is the one. I, I can't look in good conscience. This is me. This is the saith art, okay? There'll be a few of those on the, the please don't construe them misconstrue them with thus saith the Lord and thus saith art. I can't in good conscience personally say, not my president. I can't do it. Why? Because for me to say that, to say I didn't vote for him, he's not my president, is for me to say, God, you lost control. You, you, you lost control? Something's wrong here, God, because this, I can't recognize him. I know, you put, I, I know you put authorities in place, but not mine. You, you, you lost control. And if I have to go there, God's lost control, then I might, we all might as well just pack it up right now, walk out the door and be done. Because if God's lost control, then this is foolishness. Because he's, he's not God. He hasn't lost control. I I may not like what God is doing. Not even a may. But I have to accept the fact that God is sovereign in the affairs of men. God is the ultimate sovereign, and God has placed individuals, even the lowliest of men, in places to reign. Daniel 4, he then goes, he says, Nebuchadnezzar, the stump is there. Why? Your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from that time that you know that heaven rules. He's like, it's there. Your kingdom's still present, but you're going to come to an understanding. The sovereign is in control. Not you, Nebuchadnezzar. Not your pride. Not what you think is your authority. The real authority is in control. Even Jesus. Remember John chapter 19? He's having a conversation with Pilate. And Pilate looks at him and says, why aren't you going to talk to me? Don't you know that I have the authority to release you, and I have the authority to crucify you. And what's Jesus' response? You have no authority 
over me unless it has been given to you from above. Foundational principles of government. Authority comes from the only true sovereign. The authority that is granted to nations and to the people in charge comes from God. I may not always like that. I may think I have more to say than that. I do my part as an American. I vote. If you don't vote, you have no, you have no say to complain. So if you didn't vote, don't complain at all. Okay, that's, that's, but I have to come to the grips, only the true sovereign. The sovereign has ordained the institution of human government as well as the role and the purpose of government. God has said, Romans 13, the ordinance of man, or the ordinance of government, the ordinance that he has set in place. What does God have to say? As government is given authority, how is it to be used? Does God have any, any say? Does he say anything in scripture about what government is to be doing? The answer is yes, absolutely. Go to 1 Peter chapter 2, our text. We'll look at it a little bit more uh, in, in the weeks to come here. But, but what's he say? He says in verse 14, Or governors, as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. Romans 13, verse 4. He goes on to say, For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. The soldier just doesn't walk around carrying the sword. The Roman government has the sword for deterrent, to deal with evildoers, to, he, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on wrongdoers. So what, what does God say in these two verses? They parallel each other very nicely. We learn that the purpose of government, government is supposed to punish evildoers. It's supposed to do that. As well... We look, we know, by man shall his blood be shed. There's supposed to be that aspect of capital punishment, dealing with those who do wrong. Mankind is sent, uh, the, the government is sent to punish evildoers. They bear the sword, that it's not in vain. The government is also supposed to praise or commend those who do good. So in those two passages, the government is to be uh, dealing with those who are doing wrong and commending and praising those who do good. That's a hard pill to swallow, isn't it, right now in our, our current situation? I mean, I, I, I love John MacArthur made this comment. When criminals are unrestrained because they don't fear the consequences, but the police are restrained because they fear the consequences of stopping criminals, you know everything's on its head. But it's where we're at. And so we look and we're like, wait, this is the purpose of government. This is what God has said I'm supposed to be following and, and submitting to God. How do we do this? What am I, how, what's my response supposed to be? We're not getting there yet, okay? What does what is, what is government to do? To put down evil, to exalt good. First Timothy chapter two, we know this. We're, we're to pray, we're to, we're to be praying. I hope you are. I hope, I hope we can swallow our pill of pride and pray for our president. We need to. We need to be praying for our governor. We need to be praying for all of those individuals. We, we need to be praying for our legislators. Even legislators from New York, I need to be praying for them as much as I have. Ugh, they drive me nuts sometimes. We have to be. Timothy tell, Paul tells Timothy, pray them. Why? Look at the end of verse 2. That they may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. The government is to promote 
and maintain peace. It is supposed to be pursuing tranquility, to be pushing for that. And that's, what we, that's why we pray for legislators. That's why we pray for our presidents. That one, they'll get... Two, that they'll be making decisions that reflect goodness, that reflect, Lord willing, godliness, that reflect peaceful opportunities for humanity to be able to live with one another. Governments are to establish peace so that those wishing to live peaceably with their neighbors may do so. That they are to promote and to pass civil, national, and local laws that enable the general welfare of communities so that peace may continue so that we can promote and have these ideas and share the gospel that with, with ease and freedom. We ought to be praying for them and, and doing that. Go to Psalm 82. I didn't, I didn't put it up on the screen because Psalm 82 to me is really an interesting passage. It's, it's as God looks at the nation of Israel and as they're governing and as they're making judgments, he's going to rebuke them. It says, God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods. How long will you judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? Defend the poor and the fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Rid them out of the hand of the wicked. They know not, neither will they understand. They walk on in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are out of course. The world is turned upside down. God is looking at Israel and they are going through a spot here where they are practicing impartial justice or partial justice, excuse me. The government needs to exercise impartial justice. These judges were sitting in their positions and they were accepting bribes. These judges were sitting in their positions and they were turning an eye to the wicked because the poor, the destitute, the needy, they, they couldn't do anything about it, but they could accept a bribe, and get the, get the person off. And so, so God looks at him and says, justice, this idea of justice is giving what is due. And he's looking and saying, you're letting, the wicked, you're letting the wicked go, you're letting the wicked get away with it, and you're supposed to be dealing out justice to them, Israel. The same true for us. We need to see our government dealing out justice. The judges of the lands were uh, to uphold the law and to not show partiality. The officers were abusing this, uh, the people, and they were disobeying the law here in, in Psalm 82. Verse 5 is interesting. It's talking about, is it, is it talking about the judges or the common person? If it's talking about the judges, it's, it's a scathing thing that the, the whole world's turned upside down. But it seems like it's talking here about the, just the average Joe, the common person. They, they don't have the ability to understand all the intricacies of the law. And so these judges were taking it upon themselves. These Levites were manipulating the laws. They were taking bribes. They were making it so that they were benefiting, the governed were benefiting, and those who were being governed and legislated against were, were suffering and going through that. And so when the law of God is ignored, notice what it said? It said that the, the whole world is, is shaken. The end of that verse, verse 5, and when we ignore God's precepts, God's truths, God's principles about God and government and then our relationship to that, it does not help this world out. The officials were to promote the common good of people and not the good of the rulers. That's what Psalm 82 is driving at. God is saying, you're, you're, you're lining your own pockets, you're padding your own ways, and, and there are a lot of people who are really suffering. 
It's really interesting, you know, maybe that's what Thomas Jefferson was reading, you know, when he said the purpose of government is to enable the people of a nation to live in a safety and happiness. Government exists for the interest of the governed, not for the governors, not for the ones making the laws, not for the ones padding their pockets. You know, you look at the purpose of government according to the scriptures, and personally, I just, I, I look at the idea of justice, peace, punishment of the, the evil, the uplifting of good, the, the protecting of, of individuals. And, and my mind keeps going to, you know, I got to wonder, you know, we the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, what? Establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility or peace, provide for the common defense, we're going to punish evil, and we're going to promote good, Promote the general welfare, secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity to ordain and establish this constitution for the United States of America. You gotta wonder, man, were these guys like maybe know a little bit about God and government and understand some truths? There are some interesting parallels that are, that are there. And I'm, again, constitution's not inspired. The constitution is not the Bible. It's not parallel. It's not even equal, not even close. But there is a dynamic to our early fathers founding fathers, that there were godly biblical principles that were established, not even just for Bible or the, the beliefs of how Bible and God were supposed, but even in God and government. Because God has ordained an intended purpose and a role for human government. He has established it. He is the one who gives the authority for them to carry it out. And as they, they lay it out and we look at it and we say, okay, God has given a purpose to government. And we look and we say, okay, the government here, and this is, this is civil, art, civil, civil uh, government via art. You can dissect it and pick it apart totally if you want, and that's fine. And just as I look through Bible, government, what does God say just from the purposes? Government is to maintain a safe, a just, a good, and responsible environment for its citizenship to flourish by promoting the well-being of its people and protecting its people from the proliferation of evil, both foreign and domestic. Sadly, we have to go domestic nowadays, don't we? There's tons of evil coming from the inside too. And, and that's just not, that's not, that's what does the Bible say about government? That's what biblically government is supposed to be doing. And I can look and I can look and say, okay, something important for me to remember. God has given authority to human government to facilitate and pursue this intended purpose. God has given that authority even if human government is often unaware, D.C. does not recognize that God gives them the authority. D.C. does not recognize that they need to follow biblical principles to ensure the, the peace that we may experience. D.C. does not recognize and go right through the list of purposes. They don't because they've pushed, we've, we treat God like the Queen of England there, but not here. But that does not eliminate the truth of the scriptures, that this is what God says the purpose of government is to be. That whether or not D.C. recognizes it or not, we need to champion that. We need to understand that. We need to hold that as truth, because that is what God's word says about government. That is what government is supposed to be doing. And it's super easy, is it not? And over the last year and a half, we've seen, the, we've seen it just escalate in our communities and even in our churches. It is super easy to get frustrated at government 
for not fulfilling its intended purposes and role. Fair? I mean, the government funds millions of murders a year. It's, it's, it's funding abortion. That, that fires me up. The government is allowing evil to run amok in many cities. The government speaks consistently about defunding the police. The government pushes those who take moral, uh, punishes those who take moral stands. The government has become a purveyor of wickedness. I mean, it's, it's the alphabet soup of sin. If you want to go CRT, LGBTQ, you know, BLM, AOC, AOC, okay, well, anyway. Um, <laughs> whoops. Uh, it's, it's there. It is just constantly purveying wickedness in our, in our culture. The government becomes apparent that the citizens depend on from, from cradle to the grave, right? They're going to take care of us all the way. Yet the sufficient one is the, the sovereign one. He, the government's not supposed to take care of my, my aging parent. I am biblically. If I, if I don't work, I don't eat. The government doesn't give me a welfare check. There's, there's all these truths that we can look at, and we can get so fired up, and, and we, we can go on and on and on, and our ire builds up. Our anger will build up vehemently against a government that's not fulfilling its God-ordained purpose. But let me ask you a question. How many institutions has God ordained? There's three. Okay, three big ones. Government, which we're talking about. Church. Family. Okay? God has ordained those institutions. And he has given intended purposes for those institutions. And I ask you this. It's really easy to get angry at that one. But let's pause for just a moment as we wrap up tonight. And in the midst of our frustration with our government, why don't we just take a moment and personally look at the mirror of our life and consider, do I need to pull the beam that's in my own eye out before I try to remove the splinter, the, the other beam that's in the government's eye? I mean, think about it for a moment. God's purpose for a church Pastors preach numbers of times about as the bride of Christ, we, we are his wife. We are to worship. We are to instruct. We are to fellowship. We are to evangelize. That these are God-ordained purposes for this institution that we are part of, that we are being built up to be part of. We could continue on with the edification of the saints, the making of disciples, the encouraging of the family of God, the prayers that need to be, the confession of sin that needs to take place, all, all part of the purposes of this God-ordained institution. Maybe we should be a little more pointed or more of a sharing the gospel. Are you sharing the gospel? Am I sharing the gospel? That's my divine command to me as part of this institution. Are we getting together informally with people to fellowship and talking about spiritual conversations? Are we having that fellowship? Are we encouraging our kids, our teens, our, our young adults to be part of the mission field and saying, we're gonna help you, we're gonna engage you with this. We want to see that happen. Are we willing to go to the mission field? Are we, as a body of believers, are we getting a sense of responsibility and evangelism and discipleship? Or is like, oh, no, that's going to be for somebody else. That's not for me. And yet that's part of the command that is given to us as the institution that God has ordained, the local church. Younger members, are you attending funerals of older members to encourage them? I'm not talking teens and even the young adults. Those in the 20s, 30s, 40s, do you go to the, the funerals to encourage? That's part of multi-generational, cross-generational 
ministry, encouraging one another. How's the, how's the giving going? How would you make a, would you consider making a career sacrifice in order to serve and worship? I've been asked to be a deacon so many times, but I can't do it because it would take too much time, and I would have to, I would probably lose hours at work, so I'm not going to do it. I'm going to work on Sundays all the time. It's more important that I make money for my family than it is that I worship with my family. Do I make career choices that, that enable that? Husbands, are you leading your families biblically? Wives, are you submitting to your husbands? Parents, are we biblically disciplining our children? All things that are ordained by God for the institution of the family and for the church. Do we actively engage in worship? Or only the parts that we like, only the couple songs that we may care for? Or do we actively engage in all the dynamics, the singing, the prayer time, the giving, the, the, the responding to the message the Holy Spirit convicts us? Are we forgiving one another? Or do we bitterly hold grudges? Do we allow our good works to be seen before the world or do we hide it under a bushel? And the list could go on and on. And we are really good I am really good at completely seeing how the government does not fulfill its intended roles and purposes that God has divinely ordained in that institution. I have limited amount of influence in the government. I have some. As an American, I have some. Absolutely, thank God. I have a whole lot more influence and one needs to change in my family, in my church. Maybe it's time for us to take, take a moment. Our eye are still frustrated about the government. I get it. But maybe it's time for first things first. Pulling out the beam. Saying, what can we do for the institutions that we are ordained to be part of? Not saying that we don't need to address government issues, but I think we first need to, before we can even get to the point where we're going to say, how am I going to respond? Am I going to submit? Am I going to rebel? Am I going to resist? Am I going to, whatever, wherever your fancy lies for right now, with that whole perspective, you in government. I have to ask myself first, am I right with God in all these other areas? I need to introspectively look and live up to the God-ordained responsibilities as a community of believers, as part of the family of God, and say, let me look there first. Let me make sure that I'm fulfilling my God-intended roles, my God-intended purposes. Then, then we keep jumping ahead. We, we look and say, okay, what else does God have to say about government? There's a whole lot more. We'll get there. But before we get there, let's look here. Lord, I pray that you would help us to know if there are areas in our institutions of the home, of the church, where we have fallen short. Lord, I pray that you would help us to recognize you, to live for you because you are sovereign. You are God. You give authority. You've given to us authority in this church. You've given us authority in the home. And God, I pray that we would fulfill our roles, our purposes. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks so much. Have a great evening.